Greetings. We are Venom. Why listen to our not-so-spectacular Spider Bro when you can listen to us, Venom Radio? We like the sound of that. Ladies and gentlemen, the spectacular Spider-Man! Face it, Tiger. You just hit the jackpot. Otto Octavius was weak. Call me Dr. Octopus! From now on, we're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. Someone is so getting the look. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back to another episode of the Spectacular Radio. I'm Zach Joyner, the webmaster of Spidey-Dude.com and the executive producer of the Spidey Dude Radio Network. And I got Greg Bashansky, the host of this show, to introduce our fine panel this time. Well, joining us is our other co-host, Kristen Zanero. Hi, guys. And joining us again, as usual, is Mr. Greg Wiseman, the supervising producer and uh, story editor of the show. Hello. And we are very pleased to introduce our third voice actor guest, Mr. Ben Diskin, also our first villain. Hi. <laughs> awesome. Yes. Uh, How you guys ladies, doing? <laughs> we're doing great. Right. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Venom is in the house. <laughs> What's up? Not so much. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast, guys. Thanks for being here. I mean, we're going to start off with um, a question we always ask our newest guests. Uh, how did you get into voice acting? Where did you get your start? And uh, do you remember your first encounter with this franchise, Spider-Man? Sure. Um, let's see. Uh, I got started when I was about six years old. Um, my parents are both actors, and when I was born, they basically put me into the industry and I just happened to be with a talent agency that turns out is one of the biggest names in uh, voiceover uh, representation in L.A. And they said, hey, you can talk. You're a kid. You want to you wanna read this script and see what happens? And um, it's just sort of been a, a little steady, slow but sure climb from there. Um, and uh, I went in from doing radio commercials to uh, cartoon shows to video games to anime to back to cartoon shows to back to video games and bouncing all over the place in there. Um, and yeah, that's, that's basically how I got my start. Um, as for Spider-Man, my, my very first, um, uh, introduction to the character was from the nineties cartoon show. And, uh, that was, I mean, like I look at it now and I'm like, wow, that was really cheesy. And like, they got a lot of stuff totally wrong from the comics and they censored the living daylights out of everything. Um, but it was, it was for me, it was like, it was like the, the thing I would wake up for, like, every Saturday morning. It's like, I got to see it. It's a rerun. I don't care. I'm going to watch it again. And, uh, yeah, and so and that was also, like, my first introduction to uh, Venom, who became, because of Hank Azaria's performance in that, he became, like, my absolute number one uh, bad guy in the Marvel Universe. So getting to actually play him was, like, really, really cool for me. And you just, like, got a ton of cool points from me. because I'm Oh, really thanks. Show. So... Nah. I love this. I love this show, but I grew up on the '90s show too. So, <clears throat> radioactive spider blonde, spider blonde, radioactive. Like what? With Joe Perry's guitar solo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
And uh, is there a story to how you got cast in uh, Spectacular Spider-Man? Did you audition? Uh, no. Um, Greg Weissman just said Ben Dis. No, yeah, I'm just kidding. I, of course, I auditioned. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the it was a uh, it was just um I, I feel like I auditioned for this show more than once. Like they were going through different character designs, and I tried out for Peter. I tried out for Harry. And uh, when I saw the sides for Venom, I was just like, oh, my God. Oh, please. Oh, please. Can I get that? Like, yeah, Peter. Yeah, let's go make it. I don't care. Venom is awesome. So I want to do that. And um, uh, at the time, they were going like, yeah, we're thinking we're going to do like a double voice. So we want you to just like do it as like kind of creature sound voice. And then we're going to have you like dub over yourself as your own voice for the audition. And I had recently been doing anime, which is all dubbing. So I'd gotten very used to the whole ADR beep situation and um, uh, uh, just just going in there and doing what what I do. And it, it felt like, okay, this is right up my alley, and it's a character I desperately want to play. And uh, then I got it, and I was super, super happy. Yay. That's awesome. <laughs> Greg, Greg, describe um, from your perspective the process of casting Ben. Uh, well, it's Largely very fair. I mean, we had, uh, uh, you know, we sent the first round of auditions out just mostly to a bunch of agencies. There were a couple of individuals um, that I requested uh, to hear, um, which included uh, Deborah Strang, who uh, played Aunt May. I've seen Deborah play the nurse in Romeo and Juliet in the play, and I thought that during the play, I literally closed my eyes and thought, okay, that's what I want for Aunt May. Um, but for the most part, we just, uh, you know, it was a wide uh, net. And um, these days, you know, in the old days, people, uh, the old days, back in the Gargoyles days uh, <laughs> of yore, you know, um, in the Middle Ages, uh, people would come in to audition. You know, they'd come to Disney or to whatever studio and audition. But um, we don't do that anymore. Now uh, people record their auditions probably mostly from their home studios if they do any amount of uh, consistent voice work or at best they do it at their agency. Um, and so we, you know, uh, Jamie Thomason, who was voice and casting director for the show, received, because we had something like 10 or 11 characters we were auditioning for, uh, which is ridiculous. We've talked about this before. Um, it, it was a huge quantity of characters that they wanted um, not for us to just cast, but to hold auditions for. And um, so Jamie, I think, heard something like a thousand uh, auditions for all these various characters. Oy. And he eliminated it down to like two or three hundred for us to listen to. Uh, and then we narrowed it down to 10 or so per character, which still seemed like an outrageous number to me. But again, that was one of the things that uh, the regime at Marvel at the time, um, which is not the regime that's there now, um, wanted. And uh, so we had callbacks. And um, Ben, did you only, I can't remember now, but did you only get called back for... Uh, for Eddie and Venom, or did you get called back for one or two of the other characters you auditioned for as well? Oh, gosh. I I feel like it was just Venom. I, I don't think I got called back for anybody else. Maybe maybe so we um, had one Harry. audition side, yeah. which um, 
which obviously Ben's seen, and Greg, you've probably seen too, because it was in, you know, when I do those radio plays, I use old audition sides for them. Yeah. But it's an audition side for, that has lines for both Eddie and Venom in it. And, you know, what Ben is able to do with his voice to give us that Venom uh, scary-ass quality <laughs> and yet still make Eddie seem at times like a decent guy and at times like a jerk. Um, he's able to give us all that with both the acting and the voice. And so, um, and again, I know I've had this conversation on this show before, but um, we, uh, Vic Cook and Jamie Thomas and I came up with our picks for who we wanted um, for all the characters and uh, went into a big meeting with Sony and with uh, Kids WB and with Marvel really ready for a fight, or I was anyway. And then there was nothing to fight over. Everyone was in near total agreement on nearly every character, including Eddie and Venom. We all loved what Ben had done. And oh. and so there was like no fight to be had. Um, and uh, then, you know, again, one of the things that we did on this show is Eddie shows up in the first episode, he's introduced that way, mm. and we had a very slow build to get him uh, in a place where he could then bond with the symbiote in, at the very end of the previous episode uh, and become Venom. Yeah, you know, can I just say, like, for real, as somebody who likes this character, I really liked what happened with Spectacular Spider-Man's version, just because I felt like, you know, in the comics and in the 90s series, he was always just sort of like a guy who's like right. a jerk, but there's no real connection to the character. So I really like the fact that, like, he's younger in this, and it's also, you get to see, you, get, you start, you kind of like him at first. Like, he seems like a really nice guy, but there's just these little tiny, like, hints that, like, Greg and the team dropped in there that, like, something ain't right with Eddie, you know? Like in, like, the first episode with the the lizard, like, he's just the first one to just throw himself in danger, which is, like, really kind of crazy. And you kind of go, oh, that's that's not what a normal person would do. You don't, you don't just say, I'm going to be lizard bait and, like, leap into, like, a giant, you know, man-eating monster's lair. But that's what Eddie does. And so, like, like, like Greg said, it's like this slow burn all the way up to when you see them just like be, him just truly hating Peter and bonding with the symbiote and it just it all clicks and it doesn't feel like a rushed uh, poorly developed character anymore it feels like this real part of of Peter's life that turns against him and I, I really I really dug that well it was definitely easily the best version of Venom that I have ever seen and I, I'm going to be honest with something I really do like this version of Venom I think he's great he's the only version of Venom that I actually feel that way about I felt like in the comics things didn't quite gel and uh and other adaptations, also that they didn't mullet. quite get there. In the nineties, I remember. Yep, I remember. <laughs> but you, you guys really built Venom up. I mean, and uh, this is a character who historic. I mean, Sam Raimi famously didn't want to use him in Spider-Man Three. Brian Michael Bendis was pressured into using him in Ultimate Spider-Man the comic. I mean. Uh, it almost seems like there's a generational gap here when it comes to Venom. I mean, Greg, was he always part of your plan? I mean, he was, but I was also very aware of how popular uh, the character was uh, with a younger generation. I think that Venom suffered from some of the problems that a lot of the '90s uh, villains suffered from characters like Bane and um, Doomsday uh, over at DC and Venom. 
were characters where suddenly we were out of nowhere kind of supposed to believe this was Batman's number one nemesis, and this was Superman's number one nemesis, and this was Spider-Man's number one nemesis, and they're badass without a doubt, all three of them. Um, and I'm sure there are others. Those are the three that come to mind. Um, but you just have to take it for granted that they're badass because suddenly coming out of nowhere, they're able to beat these guys who've beaten everybody else. And, um, and there's a trick to that, which I get, you know, it quickly establishes this villain as impressive. But I think it's often, um, for a lot of readers, feels less than effective um, in that it's like, wait a minute, you know, we've seen Spider-Man go toe-to-toe with Kingpin and with this guy and with that guy and Green Goblin and Doc Ock, and suddenly this guy walks in and wipes the floor with him. Yeah. Um, And Venom was probably the best of the three because at least that evolved out of the whole symbiote suit story. Um, And yet I think that what Ben just said is true, that um, Eddie in the past was just a guy, like he was a guy at the Daily Bugle, and his connection to Spider-Man was really iffy, and his connection to Peter was practically non-existent. And other versions of Venom have done a slightly better job, um, but we were sort of determined to sort of say, okay, if we're going to do this character, let's make Venom, who visually is a dark mirror of Spider-Man, let's make Eddie a dark mirror of Peter as well. So that, um, and we had other plans for, to get more into Eddie's origin, um, and Eddie's parents and Peter's parents and their various connections to other characters in our show in seasons three and forward, which unfortunately we never got to. But, um, the idea was that in a lot of ways, Eddie and Peter were similar, that their parents were friends, that all four of them died on the same plane in the same plane crash. Um, and uh, the difference was is that Pete has May and Ben. Not Ben Diskin. Pete didn't have Ben Diskin. <laughs> but he had uh, Ben Barker and Aunt May. And, um, and Eddie didn't have those great people in his life. And we kept it very vague what Eddie's situation was after mm-hmm. his parents' death. We did that on purpose, but um, the key thing was is that he didn't have anyone like May and Ben Parker, and so while the lesson that Peter gets coming out of the death of his parents is this tremendous uh, appreciation of life, the lesson that Eddie learns coming out of it is a certain fascination with death. And so, like the example that... um, that uh, Mr. Diskin just gave about, you know, Eddie in episode three jumping out at the lizard. We wanted to play this, again, in this slow burn way. So when you see that initially, it's like, wow, Eddie's really heroic. Hmm. And it takes a minute, if not nine more episodes, to sort of think, boy, is he heroic or is he a little bit nuts? You know, (laughs) Um, and little hints of that with, anger management issues and um, and seeing things in very black and white terms. Um, and even then we wanted, you know, there's a moment where he's mad at Pete at the end of episode three and Pete contacts him, I think, at, uh, in four or five, I can't remember. Um, it was four. 
before, and he has that phone conversation. Eddie's like, look, I'm still pissed at you, but we're bros. I'll get over it. Just give me a little time. You know, because we didn't want him to go from zero to 60. And, and we wanted, and we built toward this thing where he gets more and more angry at people and seemingly has decent justification for his anger. Of course, he only knows half the story because he doesn't know Pete is Spider-Man. But, um, you know, you get to the point where he's asking Mary Jane out on a date just to mess with Pete. That's because he's interested in Mary Jane, per se. Mm. Um, although, who wouldn't be? But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but still, you know, it, and it's that motorcycle ride where you see him taking these crazy chances. On the one hand, he wants to woo Mary Jane because he thinks that'll hurt Pete a lot. Mm. Um but on the other hand, that other aspect of his personality, his anger and his death wish, really, um, is fighting with this desire to be the suave guy who wins the girl away from his former friend. Um, and so he winds up just freaking her out and pissing her off and, um, and failing at wooing her, so to speak. But I think that was a scene where we felt like, okay, now we're going to get, give the audience a clearer sense of who Eddie really is. And, you know, it was, it had mixed effect. There are a lot of people on that internet thing that I'm always <laughs> complaining about um, who didn't really get the scene and didn't understand and thought it was out of character and stuff like that. And we're like, well, watch the whole show again and it's not really out of character. And I think that's kind of what happens. In hindsight, people watch through those first 13 episodes and Eddie's bill becomes more obvious and clear and stuff like that. But for a lot of people, you know, the first time through at least, they saw Eddie jumping up at the lizard and, or jumping at Electro and are like, wow, he's really heroic. He's a good guy. And they're not seeing that other side of him very much. Um, but it was always there. Or yeah, what's really cool, too, about this guy is that it feels like he really passes that litmus test of, like, what a real villain is. You know, we in the animation industry, I think we tend to get carried away with, like, I'm evil, booga, booga, booga. But, like, a real true villain always thinks he's the hero. He never sees himself as a villain, and that's what Eddie is. He genuinely believes that the things that he's doing, even like the really bad things, when he's when he's trying to to hurt Peter by uh, by trying to go out with Mary Jane, like he views Pete as a bad person who needs to pay. He's trying to hurt a bad guy. He thinks he's good, and so that it adds that complexity to the character where you go. Yeah, I actually know people who are like this, who don't realize that what they're doing is wrong, but they think they're right. And it's 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 the source of like every true villain in the world. It's it's right there Not in this mention character. our current election. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh-huh. oh. But we won't go there. We won't. Um, but no, no, anyway, no. only a moron wouldn't cast his vote for the But, but yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Even in this episode that we're going to talk about, I assume, any minute now, um, oh. is, uh, you know, he, Eddie genuinely likes Gwen Stacy. Hmm. But just because he knows Peter is from having bonded now, Eddie having bonded with the symbiote, knows that Peter, even though Peter doesn't, hasn't focused on it yet, loves Gwen he's willing to let her die, you know, to literally put her at risk 
and let her die. And Pete makes, uh, Spidey, that is, makes a one mistake in trying to reason with Eddie. He, he says to him, you always like Gwen. Let me save her. Now, if he had said, I, I mean, watching it last night, I was really struck by that, that um, and I'm sure we did on purpose. Um, Kevin Hobbs wrote that episode, but I'm sure we planned all this. If he had said, you know, do what you want to me, but you save her, it might have gone a different way. But when he says, let me save her, he's, then Eddie's like, oh, you'd love that. Love looking like the hero, right. you know, um, yeah. or Venom says that, I should say. But, uh, um, and I don't know that even if he had said the right thing, it would have worked because um, the symbiote part of Venom would be very jealous of Gwen mm. and completely prepared for her to die. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Eddie part of it might have... So, you know, well, I get to be the hero? Okay. I'll kill you, but I'll save Gwen. Um, <laughs> just like a hero. <laughs> just like a hero. I'll oh, yeah. kill the bad guy because you, Spider-Man, are the bad guy. Right. And I'll go <laughs> save the damsel. I'll be the one to save the damsel. But we never get to that because Peter says, let me save her. Um, and so, you know any thought of actually rescuing Gwen goes out of Venom's mind because um, there's no way he's going to let Peter be the hero because just what Ben just said, Eddie is the hero. The symbiote is the hero. Venom is the hero. Peter slash Spidey, that's the bad guy. He doesn't get to be the hero. Yeah, I guess I can see that. Unlike, say, Goblin or Doc Ock, who I think have no delusions about what they are. I mean, Venom does. And there's also a lot of moments in this episode that jump out at me where I'm thinking if only circumstances were different. Like that, when Peter calls Eddie in his dorm and Eddie, as Venom picks up the phone, you know, Peter's apologizing. I almost wonder how things would have gone if the symbiote was not there, if Eddie had not picked up the symbiote. Maybe he would have calmed down at some point. I don't know. Uh... When you, Maybe not. When you go through something that serious between two friends, you don't immediately calm down like f- after one phone call. And I get the impression yeah. from Eddie's personality that that is something that would take a lot longer, especially because of his mindset that we've seen thus far, you know, the whole death wish thing, the resentment of Peter, and it's been something slowly building for a while. I don't think it would click as fast as you might think. <laughs> Yeah, also, well, and I think not. we sort of showed the difference in episode four. You know, in episode four, he's like, look, I'll get over it. But then Peter does another series of things which he perceives as just like, wow, I thought I knew this kid, but I don't know him at all. He's horrible. And you throw in what happened in episode 12 where Peter, with the symbiote influencing him, is literally manhandling Eddie, you know, um, (laughs) and telling him to F off and that kind of stuff. um, So that at this point, Eddie's got no reason to believe any apology from Peter would be sincere symbiote or no symbiote. Now, if there was literally no symbiote in the equation, does a year pass and they finally find their way back to them? You know, does Eddie get another job? Does he, is he able to go back to school? But at the moment, you know, Eddie is a guy who is out of work, feels like he's going to have to drop out of school, um, and has at least some reason to believe that um, that Peter is responsible. And then on top of that, when he finds out that 
Peter's Spider-Man instead of sort of going through everything and going, oh, wait, that explains a lot. Hmm. He just says, both these guys are against me. Um, and uh, then and they're both the same guy, so he's the worst person ever, you know. Yeah. There isn't a lot of um, nuance to Eddie's thinking. <laughs> I was there's wondering. There's a lot of nuance to the character, but I don't think there's a lot of nuance to how he thinks about other people. Hmm. I was I was just wondering something, Greg, because I mean you would know it. You guys wrote it. Um, how much of an of an influence is the the symbiote on him when it's actually like revealing uh, uh, that Peter is Spider Man? Like, is it withholding information? Like, he did a bunch of good stuff, but I won't show you that. Like, or is it just uh, Eddie's perception of great? Now I have a brand new reason to to dislike uh, Peter. Um, my guess is is that the symbiote you know, literally, literally feeds on hate mm. in our version and, um, and therefore wants, uh, to generate as much hate in Eddie as possible. So he's giving him an edited version of mm. Peter slash Spidey's history. So enough so that it presses all of Eddie's buttons, but doesn't explain a lot. Now, if Eddie had sort of stopped and said, well, wait a minute, <laughs> if this is true, then this must be true. You know, in other words, the information was at least feasibly there for him to access uh, and, again, take a more nuanced approach to it. He wasn't in a mood or a, a mind space, you know, a brain space to to be evaluating those things with nuance. And, again, I don't think the symbiote was helping him. Uh, you know, the symbiote was quite the reverse, trying to get him more and more angry at both Peter and Spider-Man. Cool. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves when there's a big scene in season two that reveals so much. I mean, I suppose we can mention a little bit here that scene where Eddie even begs Spider-Man to help him get the symbiote back. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. I think that union is the, you know, something that Eddie felt was missing in his life mm. even before he knew it. You know, I mean, that idea of being that close to another being, um, being that integrated with someone else was something that, you know, Peter didn't per se need. Yeah, he already Peter, had. for all his faults, has a great relationship with Aunt May, has a great relationship with... Um, Gwen has a pretty damn good relationship with Mary Jane and has pieces of good relationships with other people as well. <laughs> um, and limited by events and limited by their own limitations, you know, Harry and uh, Flash and uh, Jonah and various other people. But Peter has people in his life who care about him and he cares about. And Eddie ultimately felt that he didn't have any of that and suddenly there was someone that he, or, or something, you know, that he was connecting with in this intense, incredibly intimate way. And um, the absence of that then, no matter how negative a force the symbiote was, the absence of, absence of that um, is this tremendous void for him. Mm. Um, uh. And so, you know, in... This episode in 13, um, when that symbiote leaves him, Eddie flat out collapses. Right. 
I imagine yeah, it's yeah. also part like almost like a like a drug in and of itself. Like like there's some sort of addictive quality beyond just the emotional attachment too. Yeah, I mean I'm sure there are a lot of endorphins going on around yeah. there and all sorts of shit. So. Well, and uh, in the comics later on, it they started to give the symbiote motivation as to being something that feeds off adrenaline as well mm-hmm. as heat. So, subconsciously... Well, yeah, I mean, part of the thing in the comics also, um, and I'm not going to get into what we would have done long-term, but part of the thing in the comics also was that Venom became so popular, um, largely, I feel, because of the visual that Todd McFarlane eventually developed for the character, yeah. um, that he went from being a, a villain to an anti-hero to uh, a flat-out hero. I have um, a lethal protector thing. Like, yeah. You know, uh, and then when you create a character like Carnage, it's easier to sort of say, well, you want a bad symbiote combo? That's Carnage. This guy, relatively speaking, you got to admit, is pretty good. Um, and then he goes from being the lesser of two evils to flat-out being good, eventually. That was a... Uh, you know, it, now it may seem sudden, but at the time it was a pretty gradual evolution of the character um, from a flat-out villain and a pretty nasty one at that to a actual hero. And you know, yeah, now, yeah. now with Flash as Venom, there's not even a question. I mean, Flash is a good guy, so um, so now Venom's flat out a hero. There isn't much left of where we started with the character at that point. Yeah, I mean, like I, I always felt like, especially when Eddie Brock as Venom became an anti-hero, even a hero, that was more driven by the uh, marketing division than by the writers. <laughs> I think it was outright stated that it was driven by the marketing division. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Later on, but to get to this episode, um, making Gwen the damsel in distress. Um, I thought was great on so many levels. One, because it established the pattern, the connection between Eddie, Peter, and Gwen, but also that kind of made me, when I first saw it, I was kind of thinking, oh, maybe, maybe he throws her off the side of a building. (laughs) Oh, God. Oh, no. No, 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 God. Oh, no, no, no. It's show, man. I know. She better just fall into a coma. Let me just say this, that putting Gwen at risk always uh, is going to throw certain people in that direction, and we were not unaware of that. And the fact that also it was a great height, she was webbed up, um, that's part of it. I'm always a little uh, hesitant about the whole damsel in distress thing in general. Um, You know, in Gargoyles, we put Elisa in distress, but we just as often put Goliath in distress and have Elisa rescue her. And... um, over the long haul, I feel good about what we did with Gwen, particularly when you get to season two, and there's a moment where she flat out saves Spider-Man's life. Um, uh, but here, it, it made me antsy because there wasn't any space here for someone to return the favor to Spider-Man. Hmm. But we tried to balance it out in two ways. One, um, Spider-Man doesn't actually rescue her. It's the gang right. who rescues her um, with 
under the leadership of Mary Jane Watson. So, yes, Gwen is a damsel in distress, and Spider-Man tries to save her and helps in a small way or two, but the, the, the people who actually save her are the people that Mary Jane brought together. So she's actually rescued by Mary Jane and Liz and Sally and the guys. Go ahead. Oh, I thought it was great that you had Mary Jane be the, lead, the, the, the ringleader of that as well. Great use of that character. Because I'm a Mary Jane fan, so anytime I, I, Mary Jane shines <laughs> Me at, too. at any point, I, I get a big cheesy grin. <clears throat> yeah, I, so I, that I really was one, and then thing. two. The second way we tried to um, sort of mitigate the cliche of the damsel in distress is that you know ultimately what saves Peter from the symbiote at the very end of the episode, and that's his relationships and his memories uh, of characters like Mary Jane, like Gwen herself is obviously very prominent there and like uh, Aunt May. Now, there's also Flash in there and Ben and that kind of thing, but when you think about it, Pete's relationship with Jonah and all these guys is really secondary to his relationship to all these women. Um, And so we have that. And then the third way we tried to mitigate it is that at the end of the entire episode, um, who is it that takes action? And it ain't Pete. It's Gwen. Um, you know, the proactive person who finally breaks the stalemate of one of them admitting how they feel um, and who is smarter than Peter, at least in, well, in a lot of ways, but certainly in matters of the heart where Peter is so distracted by his hormones that he can't even tell who it is he has true feelings for. The person who... <laughs> is proactive and steps up is Gwen Stacy. It's not Peter Parker. So we felt that those three factors balanced out what otherwise is a pretty um, bland cliche. Um, And I do think, though, that it helped us also was this idea that some fans would wonder, are we going to drop her? (laughs) Um, Is this where – is this – is Gwen going to buy it here? And so that will she or won't she die thing also helped mitigate that choice for us. Because normally, again, I'm not a big fan of just sort of taking it for granted that the woman is the damsel in distress. It doesn't really throw me. Um, I mean, well, yeah, I get that also. I mean, the, yeah, the original story is a very classic story. I love it. But even now, if you look at it from a modern setting, I think it's uh, the fact that she was unconscious during it. I don't think you can get away with that today, and for good reason. Mm. I mean, she played no part in her own death story in the comics. And and that's not me knocking it. I think it's a great story, but, you know, that's it was also written in the early 70s. Yeah. Kristen? I know yeah, you I've been sitting here all pretty listening to you guys. <laughs> Don't let the woman talk. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, <laughs> no, it's quite all right. I'm actually quite enamored <laughs> with a lot of what I've been listening to because much like Ben here, I've been a big-time Venom fan. Actually, originally yeah. from the 90s. Yay for the 90s cartoon that started the love affair. <laughs> and 
I was actually really happy with a lot of this episode and just how Eddie's been handled overall because, as it's been said in the comics and in several incarnations, we really don't get into his headspace very much. And we also really don't see the connection, or rather, in this case, as been stated, the duality between Peter and Eddie. And also going back and drawing on a lot of this facts, people who are crazy don't know they're crazy. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of what we see with Eddie in this episode and throughout the series. And I personally think that just gives him a little bit more development. And it puts people much more invested into the character. So when we do finally get Venom, it makes so much more sense. I How fun was it for you, Ben, to finally bust out the Venom voice? Oh, God, I've been waiting the whole first season. Like, all like, what was it, like uh, 11 episodes before he finally gets it? Yeah. And I was just like, uh... Not to be too graphic, but uh, orgasmic, I'll say that. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and also, you know, one of the conceits that um, I came up with, and we because it had been effective for us uh, with the uh, character of Anubis and Gargoyles, was this idea of the double tracking. So um, Ben had to uh, do all of the Venom lines twice. He had to do them as, uh, in the Venom voice and also in the Eddie voice so that we could double track them um, and really get that sense of, you know, every time Venom says, we do this, we do that, you know, there are two voices saying that. And they're both Benjamin Diskin, but they're two very different voices um, coming out of that mouth. And then the really hilarious bit for me is when the mouth opens in the stomach and after he pulls the web off his face, we actually quadruple track it because we have the two voices from the stomach mouth and the two voices from the mouth mouth. <laughs> yeah, speaking of that stomach of that of that gut mouth scene, I, I recall reading a comment on the internet a number of years ago where uh, some father watched that with his son. They said that his son was terrified of the episode when that happened, and uh, the, the dad was not quite so happy about that. He said, "It's supposed to be Venom, not Satan from Dante's Inferno." <laughs> <laughs> we scared. Well, a kid, our feeling but... was is that the mouth really wasn't real. You know, it wasn't like yeah. Eddie's body was being transformed inside the symbiote. You know, uh, it was all this sort of facade that the symbiote created in concert with Eddie. And you can see that at times, uh, not every time, but at times when Eddie's face appears, you see the way it appears, that sometimes the entire mouth folds over like the mouth itself is a cowl. Um, You know, like Spider-Man's cowl or Batman's cowl sort of being pulled off. The whole thing is this creation of the ooze that is the symbiote. So the whole notion of the mouth having to be in the mouth in the head is pretty arbitrary. I mean, in other words, it basically comes out of the notion that, um, well, that's how the human human beings are. Their mouths are in their head, at the bottom of the head. But so basically, what you're saying is that be. Venom could literally talk out of his butt if he wanted to. Yeah. If he wanted to, he could talk out of his <laughs> butt, like and he, he could have long. a big tongue. <laughs> 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 so. Um, you know, there's a lot I love. There's a there's stuff I don't always love in in the animation as good as I think it is in general. The teeth, Venom's teeth, were all over the place. 
Um, you know, sometimes they line up, sometimes they don't. Um, it drives me crazy watching it, actually. Um, it's probably a minor point to most of the fans, but to me it, it uh, makes it cringe a little bit when the teeth are just animated all over the map. Um, well, you can chuckle up to how but, but it, it plays into this idea that I just said, which is that if, in essence, like if the teeth, in essence, are, are just the sort of arbitrary um, facade created by the symbiote, um, then it doesn't matter that they're constantly changing because that just means the symbiote's not being consistent as opposed to the animation not being consistent. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's there you go. some people really forget. It's a symbiote. It's an alien. It it sees our forms and adapts it. It's not a suit. It can change to anything and everything at any given point. What its visualization of us is can change on a whim. And I think exactly. when mentioning the fact that, you know, it the father saying that, it's like, guy, it's an alien. It can look however it wants to look. If it wants to look like a demon satanic thing from hell, it's going to look like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, Ben, I remember I think you said at the gathering back in uh, 2009 when you were on the Spectacular Spider-Man panel that you would have no voice for a few days after a Venom voice session. Well, it was specifically it was only one. It was uh, the episode I think that uh, we're talking about right now. Uh, with, with the one, yeah, it was. It was the one with the the double voice. Just because, in order to get the right take on all the lines, we had to do them multiple times, and it was really just like me for like a five hour session of like stuff. And right. I know, uh, I know, it wasn't five hours because four hours is all we're allowed. Yeah, <laughs> we, yeah, kind so, of. Kind at of, most, uh, it was four. <laughs> I. I, I, I trust me, dude. It was fun because <laughs> we we got to the four hour mark. And we were like, "Can you keep going?" Because <laughs> we were not done yet. And I was like, "Sure, let's do it." Because I'm a trooper. We yeah, I, you are a trooper. But it was you know, <laughs> so I, it messed my voice up for like a solid week where people thought I had some sort of horrible disease. But <laughs> it it was totally worth it. It was one of those things where like, yeah, that really hurt. But look at the result. That shit's cool. <laughs> I got to be fair. You nobody else can say that. Art is well, forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, before I move on to another pretty big topic, which I've been planning to bring up, I uh, did enjoy the little nod to the Ramitas here. I wonder if Ramitas pizza delivers. <laughs> <laughs> I love when little touches like that turn up in the series. Yep. We did Ramitas a, a couple times, mentioned that, and then Jazzy Gianni's later. Yeah, Zach, didn't uh, you on another podcast interview John Jr.? I did. Uh, well, yeah, I did. Um, he was eating a pizza in the back, sitting sitting in a car, driving around New York City, eating a pizza. Because that's the New York thing ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> on the phone doing a podcast. That was probably one of the most awesome uh, <laughs> awesome interviews that we that we ever did on that show. Second only, a second only to Greg Wiseman and Josh Keaton twice. <laughs> yeah, but now we got Venom. I mean, come on. Yeah, we got. Venom. I mean, hey. to an eleven, we got Venom on the show. You say you nice. like bro more than me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the real hero. I'm the star. <laughs> oh, this is so great. On, on this episode, definitely, you were you're definitely one of the, the trooper. <laughs> I think we need. It. Ben is just so fun. 
I'm I'm really enjoying this. I really am. I kind of feel bad now because my uh, next topic is going to go to Greg. But um, uh, here we go. Greg, we never really talked too much about Gwen on this show. I figured we would always have plenty of time to. And since she finally stepped up, we should too. I feel like. Gwen, especially on this show, is the most radically changed out of all of the characters. That's not a bad thing. I love this version of Gwen. I think she's actually my favorite version of Gwen. But how did you go about it, adapting her? What was your thought line? Especially well, since back then. Okay. Yeah, I mean, for Gwen, you have to go back to before episode one, really, which is that once we made, or I should say we, but once I made the decision that I was going to include uh, characters from the, the Romita years, the college years, and bring them into the high school. One of the things that I wanted to be clear on is that we were extrapolating their personalities backwards. We weren't meeting college-age Gwen. We weren't meeting college-age Harry or college-age Mary Jane. We were meeting high school age. What would those three characters be like back in high school? And so you want you don't want to do the exact same thing with all three of those characters. Obviously, there were other characters that we extrapolated back on, too. But when we're talking about the initial development, those were the main three that we were bringing from the Ormita era into, in essence, the Ditko era. Um, and if you're doing that, you know, you don't want all three of them to just have the exact same shift. So when it with Mary Jane, you feel like, okay, um, Here's the party girl, etc. But with Gwen, I, you know, in the Ramita years, you had the fiery redhead and the ice blonde. Um, both gorgeous, both interested in Peter to one degree or another. Um, and I thought, well, let's look deeper than that. And the first thing you notice is if you really read the stuff is that, um, Gwen is doing the science. She's not just in college studying home ec or something, even in the 60s. You know, she is in every class with Peter doing the science, and it's said clearly that if it weren't for Peter Parker, she'd be the smartest person there. And in fact, she does better than Peter because since Spider-Man's always, you know, yanking him, forcing him to miss class and stuff like that, she's actually the top student in the class. Now, you can sit there and say, well, yeah, she's the top student because Peter's flunking out. But what you're skipping then is, well, what about the other 30 students in the class and in all those classes and in the entire program? What makes her second only to Peter? And so it's like, this is a smart woman. So let's go back now to what she was like in high school when she was still very smart raised by a single father um, who's a cop, not a, you know, not a uh, beat cop anymore. He's a captain, but still, you know, very blue collar job. Um, and, you know, someone like Mary Jane might already be hot in high school, but for a lot of people who become very attractive later in life, they haven't blossomed yet. So we decided to extrapolate back to a Gwen who was very smart, very good at science, very good at a lot of the same things that Peter is good at, um, but hasn't blossomed yet. Um, but who you can tell is probably beautiful um, if she gave herself the chance. Um, and 
then throw in the idea that um, when you're in a single parent household and the parent is the dad as opposed to the mom, that she's taking on probably a lot of responsibilities for keeping things together because dad's got an intense job as a captain of police and she's the one who's probably doing a lot of what we traditionally think of as the mom stuff. Um, and what that means is that she's got to be pretty tough within that household and she's got to hold her own with Peter now, not with super villains, but with Peter and with Harry and her friend group. And so we came up with this idea of the look that Gwen has this look that if she gives it to you, you're done for, you know, um, Everyone can't say no to her. <laughs> yeah, um, that's kind of like the, you're in deep trouble. You better do exactly what I tell you right now, look. Right. And so, and we talked about the look for a long time before we attempted to show it. Um, and, uh, and it was that idea that, you know, underneath this sort of shy, bright girl, there's some steel there that you can't be the daughter of a police captain and be wimpy, you know. Um, you can be shy and insecure and unsure of yourself and all those things, but underneath it all, there's some steel there. There's someone formidable. Um, and the idea being that if this is Pete's first love, um, real love, not just infatuation, not just he's hot for because he's going to be hot for – I mean, one of the ways I pitched this show that I think I mentioned before is that Peter Parker, what I pitched originally to both Marvel and Sony was that Peter Parker is madly, passionately in love with whatever girl happens to be standing in front of him at any given moment. Except for Sally. That didn't last long. <laughs> well, and so there's a 16-year-old kid with all those hormones raging, but if you get past all that, and who does he have true feelings for? Well, yeah, he cares about Mary Jane. He cares about Liz. He cares about a lot of people. But ultimately, who does he really love? And it's Gwen Stacy. And even he doesn't realize it. He can't see it because he's so distractible. Um, but that's who he has real feelings for. And the symbiote knows it, even if he doesn't. Um, and... Gwen has real feelings for him as well. And so you get to this thing. And of course, Lacey's so good, um, really at everything. <laughs> but in particular, you know, you have that Thanksgiving dinner, which I love. And Gwen coming in um, saying, Yeah, it's lucky I got the turkey started in the morning before the PTSD set in. Um, and the way Lacey reads that, she just throws it away, but it's so terrific. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love that look. And, uh, and, you know, she does all this after she's been through what she's been through. And you know on one level she's just barely holding it all together because she has been through a horrific experience that day. Um, but she is determined to hold it together so that she can be there for her dad, so that she can be there for Peter and for May. Um and Doc Bromwell just gets 
lucky, I guess. But um, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, you have all this strength underneath this little girl, um, and she puts it all together. And at the very end, she's even strong enough to take this tremendous personal emotional risk by kissing him, even though she runs away immediately after doing it. She does something that I'm sure a lot of people wish they had done with the person they cared about. Um, she took a chance because he could have rejected her. A lot of things could have happened. And in fact, when we get to season two, we see he completely bungles it. Completely <laughs> bungles it. Um, yeah. Uh, so she feels rejected, but she took that risk. And I have tremendous um, appreciation for anyone who's that brave. And I don't mean the bravery of hanging from a web, <laughs> from a balloon. I mean the bravery of taking that kind of emotional risk. I think that's um, why I love Gwen so much. Um, Greg here's known me a number of years, Shansky, and he knows a lot of what I went through growing up. And when you speak about, you know, young women who have to go through a lot and have to be intensely strong, like Gwen, I very much identified her back when this first came out in 2007 and whatnot, when I graduated high school, irony, <laughs> revealing my age here. And... She actually became a character that meant quite a lot to me as she developed throughout the series. And personally, I want to say thank you for developing her that way because it made her mean that much more to me. And I'm sure to a lot of other people who might have gone through what I went through growing up. Well, thanks. If we had never gotten the Emma Stone version of Gwen Stacy, I don't. Uh, this would have been consistently the most well-regarded version of the character. Mainly because she suffered from uh, what some people like to call um, Silver Age Girlfriend Syndrome. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the original the one from the comics. The one from yeah. the comics. And so she kind of got saddled with that type of personality, and, and Mary Jane tended to suck the, all the all the, suck the fun towards her in the room and, and kind of left Gwen out to dry a little bit. Well, but, and what you see in those comics is um, when you read them over in order again is you see it shift wildly. In other words, only so much page space for the character, right? Right. Um, it's books called Spider-Man. It's not called Gwen Stacy. We'll, we'll get to the Spider-Gwen book decades later, right? So you're, yeah. so right now it's book about him fighting villains for the most part. Yes, about his personal life, but he's got such a great and rich supporting cast. But the amount of actual, like I want to say screen time, but it's really page time, page space, that they can give to Gwen is limited. And what that means is that there's some issues where you see the Gwen that I'm talking about, which is the very smart ice princess. Um, and then there are other issues where she's just serving a function, which is to make Pete feel guilty about missing a date or um, to worry about her father in a pretty simpering kind of way or yeah. whatever. You know, in other words, where 
because there was so limited page space, they needed her to do X or they needed her to do Y. Um, and then, you know, they get to an issue that's more about the Peter Gwen relationship and you get back to seeing the Gwen that Stan, uh, and, uh, Johnny originally introduced, um, which is this sharp minded, um, adult, you know, who is Peter's equal in a lot of ways, not Spider-Man's equal, from a superpower standpoint, but Pete's equal. Um, and then the next issue, she'd only have three lines and they needed her to be angry at Peter because he didn't show up. So she just sounds like the nagging girlfriend. And so the first thing I did as I'm reading through this is going, okay, I see what's happening here. And I kind of see why. I mean, obviously, I'm not reading Stan's mind per se, but I'm kind of getting the pattern here of why sometimes Gwen is such a cool character and why sometimes you just want her gone. Because she's annoying. Yeah, Jerry, yeah, Jerry Conway really wanted her gone. Well, <laughs> but the thing was, damn. The thing was wow. that, you know, if you then sort of say, all right, I'm going to weed out all the versions of her that are simply functional where she's playing a role as opposed to being who the character is designed to be. And so that was sort of step A. Then step B was saying, okay, what is core to her character? Um, and that's the intelligence and that's the single, the only child of a single dad, um, the person who cares deeply about other people, um, including Peter and including her father. Um, and then you get to those core things about her, and then you extrapolate back. Okay, now who is that person in high school? How did she get to be this person that we see in college? Um, and that's when you wind up with Gwen Stacy. Then you throw in two huge factors, which is um, the the wonderful designs of, of Sean Galloway and the wonderful performance of Lacey Chabert, and you come out the other end with the Gwen Stacy you guys all saw. And it was <laughs> great. And I love what you said about how she took a big emotional risk because it gets me to stop and think, in a lot of ways, that's the opposite of Mary Jane because Mary Jane, she's very open. She hangs out with people. She parties, but she doesn't really take emotional risks. So you can almost see over. Oh, she avoids anything time. close to yeah. emotional risk. Yeah, and we had backstory ideas for her as well that again we never quite got to because of uh, season three, etc. But um, but yeah, you know, again, one of the ideas is to take Gwen and Mary Jane and not say. They're the same character, except one has red hair. Um, <laughs> we want them to be two very different characters, um, and both very important in Peter's life. Life, but um, <coughs> excuse me, um, but not in any way duplicates. But we wanted them also to complement each other in such a way that they could be friends. So not instantaneously. If you notice, Mary Jane starts off. Her best friend at the school is Glory. But as yeah. time progresses, she gets closer. It's not that she stops liking Glory, but she gets closer 
to Gwen. And the idea was is that um, as time passed, the two who really had the bond among these women would be Gwen and Mary Jane. And what I didn't want to play at all was them being catty towards each other, which again felt like, you know, when you read the comics, that becomes like, okay, we need the scene here, so let's have Gwen be catty towards Mary Jane and vice versa. It seemed reductive to both characters and unnecessary. And again, more functional. We only have a page here, so we've got to establish some conflict. It didn't seem endemic to either character. So again, that became something that I quickly weeded out. Uh, this idea of them being jealous of each other. and I mean, how they would do scenes of them jealous of each other when Mary Jane wasn't even interested in Peter. Um, yeah. Just for the sake of creating a little conflict for half a page. And that, mm-hmm. to me, is just, you know, not the strongest moments in what Stan and John were doing because they were doing some really great stuff with both Mary Jane and Gwen, sometimes together, sometimes separately. But in those issues where there was very little page space for those characters, you got very cliched kind of stuff from them. And the issues where they had page space, you saw the real Mary Jane and the real Gwen, and that's what I tried to play to. Uh-huh. And ultimately, at the end of the day, also, Gwen, she had an influence on both of them, even in the comics, and I'm sure, and I like to think in the show, too, because it was her death that ended up bringing Peter and Mary Jane together. Not in the sense, like, oh, Gwen's out of the way, it's just like, that was when they grew up, that was a big growing up moment for both MJ and Peter. I think that's true. I'm not saying that's what we would have done, but I think, without a doubt, in the comics, that's true. Um, Gwen was Peter's first love. Uh, without a doubt, and Mary Jane um, was his second, but the love with Gwen was the love of, you know, young college students, 18, 19, at most 20 years old. The love between um, Peter and MJ is the sort of graduate school into adulthood love, and uh, it's a very different dynamic. Uh, One's not better than the other. I'm not making an evaluative thing. It's just they're very different. Uh Uh-huh. Zach? Yeah. yeah, He pretty much covered all my questions about Gwen (laughs) in that lengthy monologue. So um, anyway. uh, What we haven't talked about, um, there are a couple things we haven't talked about that we should. One is Flash. Um, Hell yeah. There's a yeah. great scene between Flash and Pete following up on the scene in the previous episode. There's a great scene here where Peter thanks Flash and Flash has this moment of, uh, you're okay, kid, you know, kind of, yeah, we were friends once, uh, you know, and then, you know, all the friends are coming and Flash is like, don't mention it, don't mention it to anyone, you know? Um, and that's Josh Labar at his best. Um, um, and, uh, and uh, you know, Flash is uh, one of my all-time favorite characters, Flash Thompson. And, and, uh, um, and there's great moments also when Peter sees Flash and Mary Jane together and it's like, well, at least he's not evil. Well, at least he doesn't have a evil symbiote attached to him. 
at least I don't think so, you know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, Ooh, there's so much shadowing. It's so fun with Flash. Um, and that wasn't foreshadowing because at that time, when we made that show, Flash was not Venom. Um, like I said, un- unintentional. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, and then the other character that I think um, is Aunt May. Yeah, you know, who I think has some really wonderful moments in the episode, uh, even when she's asleep. Um, and uh, and I just I I still love Deborah's performance, particularly when she goes just casually. Well, I'm not happy about that hospital bill. It's going to completely wipe out the advance from my book. What? <laughs> oh, that was glorious. And then turning around, saying, well, I should probably write one that's a little bit more help. Heart healthy. Do you think I could get another early advance? That <laughs> <laughs> oh, was great. And I, and that was again something that we just thought about when we were d- developing her character was that okay, money's tight. She hasn't worked um, because Ben was the provider, and uh, and so what does she know? Well, she is one of the greatest cooks in the Marvel universe. I mean, face it. You know, everything Aunt May cooks tastes fantastic. Um, and so if you're Aunt May and you're a smart, capable woman, um, what do you do with the skills you have? Well, you either open a restaurant or you write a goddamn cookbook, I guess. So, uh, <laughs> and, and so that's what she did. And there are scenes earlier, there's a scene, you know, where uh, in an earlier episode where she's got where we planted the seed for this too, because she's got like, she's cooking like 400 things at once or something like that. She's cooking enough food for an army that Peter comments on. Um, and, uh, and we just see that she's been cooking and cooking and cooking. And it's like, well, cause she's, you know, honing her recipes for the book. Oh. Um, and then I also like the little romance that's developing with Doc Brown while I, I just like that a lot. <laughs> yeah, I do too. Well, my um, um my final question was: we we're now at the end of season one. When did you guys know that season two was a reality? Well, we had a pretty good idea that we were going to get two seasons. Three was always up in the air, and then it didn't happen. But the reason we were pretty confident we'd get two is was economic, which is that it didn't make a lot of financial sense for Sony to do 13 episodes and only 13 episodes. Um, you can't amortize costs over only 13 episodes enough to, uh, to make up for the cost of doing the show at all. So we were pretty confident we'd get a season two, but it wasn't a given. And then we got this big monkey wrench in the works, which was that um, Kids WB was going out of business. But we had one other great thing working in our favor, which was that we were Kids WB's highest rated show. We rated so high that um, they were started airing us for an hour, you know, a rerun and a new episode. And even our reruns were rating better than 90 plus percent of their other programming. So what that did is it gave Sony the confidence to sort of say, okay, we know this show's a hit. Um, we need to do another season for economic reasons, financial reasons, um, 
we have the contract with Marvel to do it, so let's keep going. And we actually got the go-ahead to start on season two um, before we knew where we were going to air. Oh, wow. Um, so we started off on season two before Disney XD was chosen as our air target. So before anyone from Disney weighed in. And just so your listeners are clear, um, this is before Disney bought Marvel. Um, Disney didn't buy Marvel until some months after we had been canceled for after season two, before season three. So, and, and because of that, Disney buying Marvel had no effect on whether or not we made a third season. Huh. Um, no. no effect at all. Wow. That'll, uh, that'll perk up a lot of ears. Yeah, I always thought it was the other way around. I've been saying it for years, but but people insist on buying the scenarios that the Internet preaches. And, um, (laughs) yeah, Yeah. the fact of the matter is that we were canceled months before Disney bought Marvel. And since that was a pretty big surprise to everybody, it had no effect whatsoever on the fact that we didn't get a season three. Zero. Hmm. Now, it, it would certainly complicate things in terms of potentially bringing the show back, which is almost impossible. But um, but it had literally no effect on our prospects for season three. And it certainly had nothing to do with us getting season two, which we did get, um, because this was long before, this was a full year before, our pickup for season two came a full year before Disney uh, – Marvel. Well, there we go. Right. Um, let's see. Is there? We'll talk about the transition, the season two, two more next time. But are there any? Was there anything going on when you came to the end of season one? Like uh, behind the scenes? Uh, nothing that jumps out at me. I mean, you know, we had planned uh, a very cohesive first season. We were taking a big risk, particularly with uh, Harry Osborne, the revelation that Harry Osborne was Queen Goblin. Um, if we didn't get a season two, that would have been uh, um, made me unhappy, <laughs> uh, specifically on that point. But uh, um, but what I'm saying is is that we had a we had we were fairly confident. You couldn't ever be a hundred percent confident but we were fairly confident we were going to get a season two. So I was willing to take that risk. Um, and as I do with all shows, you end the season with open-ended closure. Um, we've Not defeated Venom, um, but there's a lot left open. And, you know, Eddie's at large. Um, and uh, um, Tombstone's still in operation. Um and oh my God, Gwen just killed, kissed Peter. Uh-huh. I'm not gonna lie. So. When I when that moment happened, when I was watching it live on Kids WB, I went, "Oh man, I gotta wait a whole another se- another season for for this resolution, man." Yeah. Well, I, I was, that's what we want. We're being very happy. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, this is what I was last about. I haven't seen this since the final gathering when they showed it in the panel. There was a pretty big deleted scene at the end of this episode for the DVD releases involving Chameleon, Beck, and uh, Phineas Mason. At the end of this episode? I think it would have been. It would have been on the DVD releases. Trying to remember, uh, I have that. Mm. No, no, it wasn't clear. He showed us at the gathering. Uh, t- Chameleon shows up at the prison to bust out Clinton Beck and uh, Phineas Mason, only they've been replaced by holograms and are already gone. Right. I, I mean, I definitely remember that scene. I don't remember that it was in this episode, um, which explains probably why it was excised, because it had nothing to do with the rest of this episode's content. But, um, uh, but yeah, we had that. You know, there was also a scene that showed uh, um, uh, Ox and... and uh, the Enforcers. Uh, yeah, Ox and... At the end of the... Uh, group um, therapy. Group therapy, there's a scene where Ox and uh, Fancy Dan, uh, dressed as cops, uh, take in Montana, but clearly aren't going to take him in. Um, and, uh, so that Montana's free. And again, that was all done on purpose because the original plan was that, you know, we wrote those things long on purpose, um, because the original plan was that we were going to do these DVD releases that would have additional scenes in it that you wouldn't see in the, uh, um, original aired episodes. And then the lawsuit between Marvel and Sony, um, wiped out the opportunity after the first DVD to, sh- to show those, to cut those together into movies that would allow us to have more connected tissue and more scenes in them. Um, and uh, so those kind of got lost in the shuffle a bit. Oh, well, it would have been nice to see them as an extra on the Blu-ray, but I'm just happy we have the Blu-ray at all. Yes. Yeah. And uh, is there anything else to say about this episode? Covered my point, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, All right, well, uh, cool. Yeah, I think we are. Anyway, do, I, do uh, you do you two have any projects you want to promote? Ben, I'll let you go first if you got. Oh, um, oh boy, gosh, I feel like it's something I wish I could promote on on this, but I I can't. It's non-disclosure stuff. Um, uh. I'm in some video games that just came out. Um, like they have nothing to do with Spider-Man or Marvel or anything like that. But uh, that's okay. Okay. Um, yeah, we, we promote everything. Oh, we awesome. Yeah. Okay. Um, you can catch me as Usus Alberea in um, Trails of Cold Steel Two, uh, which just came out. It's a JRPG. Um, and uh, oh yeah, also uh, Kingdom Hearts Two Point Eight uh, is coming out. I believe. December of this year, um, or November, late November, I'm not sure, um, but it's uh, the uh, PS4 uh, port of the Kingdom Hearts Dream Drop Distance uh, game, along with some extras, um, and that's going to be cool. I play Young Master Xehanort in that, and um, go, go, go buy it. It's good. Awesome. Yay. Uh, and I'm going to pimp what I always pimp, which is uh, to start with uh, my two novels, Reign of the Ghosts and Spirits of Ash and Foam. Both are available on Amazon um, and or at any bookstore. If they're not on the shelf, when you happen to walk in, you can go to the front desk and order them. There's also my uh, audio play version of Reign of the Ghosts, 
with uh, its uh, full cast, 20 actors playing 30 roles, uh, four hours of original music, sound effects. It's like a four-hour movie in your head. Um, and it is available at gumroad.com slash Reign of the Ghosts. Uh, also, I'm working on uh, the preschool show Shimmer and Shine. It's not the same audience, obviously, as Spectacular Spider-Man, but if your listeners have uh, uh, kids, um, I'm, I think the show's turned out great. The second season premiered recently, which is when I started working on it, and a couple of my episodes have aired already, and I think they turned out great. Yeah, my daughter um, and loves finally, yeah, thank you. And finally, uh, um, my novel for World of Warcraft, uh, World of Warcraft Traveler, um, comes out uh, in November. So look for that. Uh, and uh, I think that covers it. I mean, I've got their trades out for both parts of Star Wars Kanan. There's a trade out for Star Brand and Night Mask, both, all of which I did with Marvel. Um, and a uh, new Young Justice, not a new Young Justice trade, but finally on Comixology, the missing third trade is available uh, as an mm-hmm. e-download. Um, and uh, we're, as always, urging people to buy uh, Young Justice Blu-rays uh, and buy those companion comics on Comixology to help... Uh, convince people out in business land to uh, make more young justices. Keep binging on on uh, Netflix too, guys. Yeah, keep binging because Ben here shows up playing another really creepy character in one episode. That's right. You should yeah. say something about me, Greg. What's <laughs> <laughs> up with me playing like, like vicious characters? I can play nice guys. Oh, yeah, and you can no, play I nice really guys, nice but guy. you're so good playing vicious guys that... Uh, oh. Uh, that uh, it's hard not to want to go to you for that. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ben plays Harm uh, in Young Justice, and uh, Harm is in many ways, uh, I think, even more chilling than Venom. Um, yeah, he's, murders uh, his sister. That's pretty messed up. Yes, yeah. he is. Uh-huh. He is a uh, he is a scary guy, <laughs> um, <laughs> and. Ben does him full justice, uh, without a doubt. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah, you could play nice guys in your sleep, but, uh, but it's, those, <laughs> it's those sociopaths that are so much fun to get from you. He's not wrong. <laughs> so, so whenever he needs a sociopath, we know who he calls. <laughs> I'm going to have to get my friends who are actually do a lot of cosplay from Young Justice who basically eat, sleep, and breathe it, put the word out, be like, guys, tell everybody you freaking know, because I know some of you were just at Dragon Con, one of them recently dressed as, you know, Robin. Guys, get everybody by it, watch it, whatever, do something, we want this back. Indeed we do. <laughs> I'd love to see cosplayers doing harm in secret. That would be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. nice. I might put a word out to some people I know then. And then you'll have and to we'll send you pictures. We'll send, we'll, send, we'll. Ben, we'll send Ben and Greg pictures. Yep. <laughs> Yay. All right. Anyway, Ben, it was a pleasure having you on the show. It was really great. Thank you for coming on oh, and thank okay. you for doing and thank you for doing that voice on the show. I mean, just it's chilling. <laughs> uh, well, thank you guys so much for having me and uh it's 
it's good to hear from from you guys and and from you too, uh, Mr. Weisman. Um, thank you so much. This was really awesome. And Greg, once again, thank you for everything. We finally got to the end of season one, and I hope we get through season two at a faster rate than we did season one. I mean, that was mostly on me. That was mostly on me, but uh, but um, it was uh, uh, so far it's been a great experience. We're halfway through. <laughs> I, I'm having a great time. So happy to do it always. All right, Thanks, and Greg. we'll be back. Yeah, thank you. Thanks. And ben, we'll be back. Great to talk to you, Ken. <laughs> you too. <laughs> Awesome. Anyway, we'll be back next time with Season 2, and we'll have another special guest joining us, the voice of Donald Menken. We'll talk about that next month, next time. <laughs> Donald Menken. Hmm. <laughs> have a good night, everybody. Bye. may have died together, but you had your precious aunt and uncle. We had no one. We've always been alone. Until now.